guys, it's Keith. We're living in a new dark age. The enlightenment is characterized by a pursuit for truth and understanding through curiosity and reason, primarily. But we're not living this way, even though it's the era that has essentially defined modern civilization from the inception of the USA and onward. We're living instead in an age of belief and the demonization of those who don't share our beliefs. We see modern witch hunts, a failure in due process, blind conformity to mass thought, hysteria everywhere, and a fundamental weakening of our institutions that rely so heavily on enlightenment principles. Trust the science as an example, as a phrase, I find really troubling. The field of science is corrupt, just like most fields are. It's corrupted by perverse incentives, specifically through funding. Capitalism is not an ideal economic structure, and the pursuit of science exists within it. And as such, you have scientists chasing the money and not necessarily lying with facts or contorted truths, but indeed pursuing very specific agendas and tailoring research toward those agendas. Funds are controlled through governing bodies that are fundamentally political, and the politics of the day will therefore bend scientific output toward certain directions. You see this with climate science, regrettably, and you see this with the pandemic. Indeed, social policy must be informed by science, which is to say that it must be educated and informed by evidence derived by the scientific method. Let's review what the scientific method is. We start with a question or an observation. We research and we form a hypothesis. We do experiments and we analyze the data that result from those experiments to form a conclusion. But we don't even stop at the conclusion. We then repeat the whole process to test it again and again and to aim actually to disprove our, our hypotheses. We have to control for variables. We have to subject our, uh, our data, our findings um, to new changing control groups. And this is how we arrive at some of the greatest discoveries of our time. Gravity, you know, uh, the Earth revolving around the sun, all these kind of ideas could not have happened if belief were taken as a given, if we just had to accept what authorities said, like the Catholic Church, regarding heliocentricity. So what's going on now? I think now we're falling prey to logical fallacies, just as we had in the Dark Ages, pre-Enlightenment. 
there was tremendous appeal to authority. That authority happened to be the church, by and large, and kings and kingdoms. What is our authority now? Well, with the pandemic especially, it's specific scientists and politicians. Especially Dr. Tony Fauci, who I want to dedicate some time to here. You know, we're getting some distance now on our entire pandemic response of 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And I think now that it's, you know, in our rearview mirror, more or less, we can start doing a proper autopsy on how our society has handled the pandemic. And I would say that we handled it very badly. I'm on record on this podcast over the years since the very beginning of this pandemic against our reaction, against our hysterical lockdown, authoritarian, mask mandating, vaccine mandating response. I think it's been a travesty and it continues to be a travesty, especially for children who I think are probably the people most adversely affected by all this through missing school. I think Zoom culture has been terrible for everybody. We've gained some things. We've gained a sense of uh, freedom of movement in terms of work. We're not confined to office spaces. But it's not like office spaces are all bad. There's tremendous value in proper face-to-face -face discussion for everybody. And we missed out on years of that. And all because we formed a social policy around fear and outsized paranoia. Now, it's come to light through a study by the Cochrane Library, which, from what I can tell, is a highly esteemed institution of rigorous research, that, quote, Masks made little to no difference in preventing the spread of COVID. It's also come to light that the lab leak hypothesis regarding the origins of COVID, SARS-CoV-19 is far more likely than the wet market spread. Of course, there's plenty of evidence that suggests how detrimental it has been to the psyches of humans writ large, the, the effects of locking down and avoiding contact with others, isolation. This has been terrible for everybody. So what have we gained? Well, the pandemic, COVID-19, did kill a lot of people depending on how you define a lot, you know, certainly a million or so Americans uh, statistically, you know, in terms of what has been published, this is a figure that we're kind of accepting, but how many of those people would have died within a year anyways? It's hard to know, but I think it's easy for most of us to imagine that so many of the deaths were in combination with other comorbidities and age. Surely many of us have lost somebody to COVID in some indirect way or direct. But you know, COVID isn't exactly 
a disease that's easy to pin down. There are complications at the end of life, and it's hard to say exactly what does deal the fatal blow, so to speak. Old age, in quotes, is how we often describe many people's deaths because it's a series of systemic failures within the body. It's not one specific thing, unless it is easily identifiable as a cancer, for instance. COVID was certainly used as a reason or cause of death on many death certificates. But one has to question how corrupt the medical community became to funding and the like when the numbers of COVID deaths certainly affected how much money they were given from various sources. I don't mean to sound conspiratorial here. I'm happy to, again, go with the flow by and large to get my vaccine shot as I did, happily just a single dose. I'm happy to essentially be part of a community and to serve the public good, to try and save lives if certain actions would indeed help prevent death. But did my efforts or your efforts really help anything? I think that's what we're left wondering now. If sheltering in place, if isolating, if getting five booster shots, if wearing masks in our cars, if these did any good at all. And the evidence I'm seeing points to no, they didn't really. Now, you have to really get into the weeds in terms of why certain things weren't effective and what the efficacy was even based on, right? So if masks were aiming to spread or aiming to dampen the spread of airborne molecules and particles, well, why didn't they? Is it because people would often take their masks off in order to speak? Is it because they weren't followed rigorously enough? Or is it because, by and large, when you're wearing a mask in front of somebody else wearing a mask, and both of you are young, healthy people with no COVID in your body, What's the point? Whereas if you're wearing a mask in a nursing home and people are highly vulnerable to any change in health conditions, even a mask isn't going to be able to be worn constantly. So when eating, perhaps that might be when the virus is transmitted. So this policy of just telling everybody to wear a mask constantly it's a little bit too rough of a measure, right? Certainly, somebody that's very vulnerable to a respiratory disease should avoid the respiratory particles from infected people. But who's to say who is infected and who's not? Who's to say when that mask is actually useful and when it's not? I think by and large, like most measures of this sort, it must come down to personal discretion. And yet we politicized it so much that our personal discretion was rendered 
irrelevant as if we didn't have the intellectual capacity to make our own informed decisions. Now, people like me certainly maintained that. I held on to my ability to make my own decisions, but it was hard for me. And I am possibly the freest person I know, freest from scrutiny or consequence and the like. But it's very hard to stand up against a mob mentality, despite whatever truth you might hold on to. And to me, it always was clear that health is mostly determined by fitness, by diet, by exercise, by healthy bonds with other people, relationships, by being outside, by vitamin D and the sunshine, by fresh air, and by also a properly optimistic sense of the near future and an ability to organize your life in a predictable way. And our pandemic response threw all of that out the window. It threw every single one of those facts out the window and prioritized instead avoidance, darkness, <laughs> stuffy rooms, and a sense of fear and instability and uncertainty. And I just question people like Fauci and Biden and the Chinese government who insist on doing things so aggressively authoritarian, so messily, with such a haphazard attitude of first saying that masks aren't required and having those you know, ulterior motives for saying that and then saying they are required and having certain motives for saying that, trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator, trying to cover up any other uh, conflicts of interest, and those things are coming to light. For instance, instance, this whole idea of a gain-of-function research. So gain-of-function might be a term you've heard of. It's essentially to make viruses stronger, <laughs> to, make, to test and see how much of a human populace could be affected, infected by a certain contagion. What the hell is the purpose of researching this topic? Why would we want to create a deadly pandemic? Well, the answer is simply to create a vaccine for it. But surely, my fellow liberals and dear listeners, we are suspect of a pharmaceutical industry that tries to create a disease just to give us a cure, aren't we? And yet, the very specific lab in Wuhan, China, was doing just that. It was a COVID, a SARS-CoV-2 lab that most likely created this pandemic. There's a new book out called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, co-authored by Alina Chan and Matt Ridley. And these two writers and scientists were recently interviewed by Sam Harris on his Making Sense podcast that I highly recommend listening to. And they go into the weeds, into the, all the details of what I'm speaking of here, the likelihood of the lab leak hypothesis, but how it cannot, uh, at, the, at bottom, it cannot be proven because any evidence that would certainly be the smoking gun doesn't exist. The lab 
conveniently hadn't kept records, certain records uh, had conveniently distorted and muddied certain facts that could have been researched to find this out. And it goes back to that scientific method, you know, research requires the collection of data, data points, but you can't collect data points that you're not looking for or that don't exist. And it makes me wonder how, how certain data points might not exist, you know, certain things are being covered up by the Chinese government, which shouldn't surprise anybody. And I just remember back to when this all started, how lambasted people were that questioned the wet market hypothesis, how blasphemous it was to indeed question where this might have come from, how Donald Trump, president at the time, was mocked and called a racist for calling it the China virus, for suggesting that it came from China, you know. And it made me wonder, like, why are we so afraid to say that? Why are we coddling the Chinese? You know, it didn't make sense to me. From NPR, I'm looking at this uh, Reddit post, um, which looks pretty bad now, as a lot of things are. From December 2020, a new poll finds 40% of respondents believe in a baseless conspiracy theory that the coronavirus was created in a lab in China. There is zero evidence for this. Scientists say the virus was transmitted to humans from another species. So, you know, NPR, like every major publication, was presenting a certain hypothesis as fact and acting as if all scientists were in agreement on board with this, which is definitely not the case. Scientists disagree about things all the time, and yet there is this sort of consensus among the scientific community that we're made to think exists and to believe. You know, there are certain consensuses, I'm sure, among the scientific community, such as gravity or E equals MC squared. You know, these are the kind of hypotheses that basically nobody doubts. But to say that all scientists agree that the lab leak is false is wrong. That's just plain wrong. And there's plenty of evidence. There was plenty of evidence at the time when NPR wrote this. There is that, that exact lab in Wuhan. You know, that alone is interesting. That seems undeniable that that fact is interesting. How many labs in the world research uh, SARS or COVID respiratory viruses, a handful. And one of them was in Wuhan, China. So it's a little strange to be told not to look at that, given the smoke screen around it. You know, the way that that went down was that uh, research only pursued the wet market hypothesis. So people were tested for COVID within that wet market area who had visited that recent time uh, during that time and people that lived around that and those were the people that were tested for covid and there was a sort of like broadening of scope in terms of the infections and who like from whom to whom all based on this one trajectory of research people weren't being researched or um, studied at the lab and 
we never will be able to do that now. So that's a little convenient, I would say. I don't think it proves one thing or another. What it proves is that the interests were in creating the wet market theory. And if you follow the money, it stands to reason. Nobody in the scientific community would benefit from a lab leak. Nobody in the public health policy-making community would benefit from a lab leak because it undermines science broadly as a pursuit, as something to fund, as something to care about. And yet, like that quote from NPR just stated, at that time it was 40%. It's actually a majority now, over 50% of people do believe in the lab leak hypothesis despite all the efforts made by major media institutions and the like to discredit it. Because people like you and I, possibly, dear listener, have too much of an instinctive understanding of how things might work. You know, this came out of China from a city in which there is a lab that does this exact study. <laughs> and we know certain things about authoritarian regimes like China's government. We know certain things about how the world works, suppression of facts, propaganda, etc. What's worrisome is that in the USA, supposedly a, quote, free country, we had a similar sort of response of essentially muddying the waters and defenestrating anybody that countered this main narrative. And one such person that was ridiculed and threatened career-wise is Jay Bhattacharya, a Stanford epidemiologist who certainly has the credibility and the credentials to be believed or listened to to some extent. He was recently interviewed on Jordan Peterson's podcast. I know that name, Jordan Peterson, already just inflames so many people that it's almost discredited, everything else that follows. But I do urge you, listener, to consider listening to this interview because Dr. Bhattacharya went on record when this COVID pandemic broke out that indeed certain requirements being asked of us were ill-advised and unnecessary. And he was speaking from an educated point of view, having done certain amounts of research on the topic and just felt that this virus wasn't going to be as deadly to the broad community, the broad, you know, global community, as others made it out to be. And I think, in my opinion, he turned out to be right. Now, we can possibly disagree to some extent on how deadly and devastating the, the virus has been. It is very hard to know, given the numbers that we are asked to trust we need some scope there. We need some perspective. One million sounds like a lot, but you know, out of 350 million, it's far less than a percentage. And like I said, it's hard to know how many of that one million would have died anyways. So it's a, it's a messy, unreliable number. And globally, it's even harder to really pin that down. But proportionally, compared to the seasonal flu, for instance, how deadly was it? These are questions that are important to wonder about. 
And yet with a phrase like trust the science, we're not actually encouraged to wonder about these things, which is a little counterintuitive because isn't it the job of science to pursue such a question? Well, again, when you have policymakers and scientists who are corrupted by funding, you create these perverse incentives that muddle anything that might look like a coherent and cogent way of moving forward. And that's just very sad to me. It's very, very sad. It's also just very sad to consider how many people, how many free-thinking people or well-meaning people were demonized for being conspiracy theorists, for being too radical, for being uh, troublemakers, for, you know, not towing the line as if people like me were interested in hurting the elderly by not masking up, as if all anti-vaxxers are somehow these crazy, non-scientific, you know, who knows what. I mean, within the anti-vax community, you have new age hippies and you have urban black people with a history of government distrust. These groups have very, very little in common, but they both are skeptical of vaccines. And so you can't just paint with a broad brush that everybody that's opposed to a vaccine is stupid or, you know, sociopathic. You just can't say such a thing, given how many different kinds of people there are that are skeptical of something like a vaccine. And we do have evidence of people reacting negatively to the vaccine. We have, you know, intelligent people perhaps warning against pregnant women or babies being vaccinated with this very new medicine, if we can call it that. Why am I saying all this? Well, it's not to make anyone feel bad. It's not to congratulate myself or to assure myself that everything I've done is correct. I definitely don't know if that's the case. I did get vaccinated. Uh, I've gotten COVID at least once. It's hard to say if any of our individual uh, actions have been proper yet. But what I could, can say, and the reason I am speaking today about this, is that we certainly failed as a society in reacting to this properly. And I don't know if it could have been different, but I am very worried how quickly we jumped on the authoritarian bandwagon, how quickly we were willing to believe our leaders and accepted something as draconian as a lockdown for a virus that is hard to diagnose even. You know, when we're faced with a virus that turns our skin inside out and kills people on contact, I think it's more fair and understandable to trust these kind of measures. But for COVID, I think it's pretty clear that we overreacted. And those effects, we'll be feeling the ramifications of those reactions for a long time coming. And my sympathies, again, go mostly toward the youth who had to miss school in formative years and who are still being asked to mask 
why? Why are kids now the ones that have to mask up? I think it's so sad. I think it's very, very unhealthy for their psyches and their mental abilities to grow and adapt to an unsafe world, to be asked to just mask up, to take this authoritarian, you know, certainly this view from authority to being told that they have to lose their freedom of the face. I think it's just really sad. And I just wonder, dear listener, if you are still as gung-ho on these restrictions as you have been in the past, or if perhaps you are reconsidering some of what's happened. You know, I do wonder when this study from the Cochrane Institute, or the library rather, when it releases this evidence that masks were basically useless and ineffective, why some people still wear them and what the point there is. Is it still a virtue signal? Is it still a tribal allegiance? Is it still like wearing a baseball hat and showing what team you're on? Or do you really think that you are saving grandparents out there who will likely die anyway? I feel fortunate to know that my parents did eventually get COVID and did survive. And that even for people in their 70s, it's not a death sentence to get this virus. Certainly not anymore now that it's mutated. I think it's become weaker. I think it's become perhaps more contagious, but certainly less lethal. And that's probably a great thing. And I just wonder what we're still afraid of regarding COVID now that so many of us have survived it without much incident. What are we so afraid of? What I'm afraid of is how we react as a society. You know, there are going to be governments around the world that are more or less tyrannical, but certainly as a modern human species, as a collective unit of earthlings, I would hope that we would have some vigilance against tyranny. I hope that we could speak up for our independence and individuality. And this isn't to say that we're not communal thinkers and that we disregard, you know, our neighborhoods and our neighbors. Indeed, I think communities specifically suffered because of this lockdown mandate phenomenon. It are the, it's the small businesses, it's the schools, it's the neighborhood gatherings, it's the socializing, the casual socializing. Those have been what have hurt the most. So when I say that I am anti-mask and anti-lockdown, it's because I advocate instead for getting out of your house, gathering in other places in public, being with other people, drinking, being merry, music, street fairs, in-person meetings, handshaking, hugging, love. These are the good things that keep us healthy as individuals and as a community. And I think it's just such a sadness and such a tragedy that we are willing to throw all that out for the fear of this amorphous, quite faceless virus. And I'm looking forward to this autopsy on our reaction to continue from other podcasts. You guys have your own people that you listen to, I'm sure. It doesn't have to be Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, but 
I still do advocate for those two guys. Sam Harris indeed was one of the strongest voices for taking this virus very seriously. And I'm glad I had him in my ear. He was not going in the direction I was, but he kept me from going overboard with my more libertarian approach. And he has had to basically walk back, I don't know, not certainly not revise what he was saying. He admitted in his interview recently that he was indeed somebody that said, why are we so concerned about where this came from? Why are we considering this lab leak hypothesis? He was concerned about controlling the spread of the virus. That's what his concern was. And I think it's fair enough to be concerned about that. He wasn't demonizing people that contradicted him necessarily, though he did do a bit of that with Brett Weinstein and ivermectin and anti-vaxxers in general but by and large sam harris is an extremely rational and reasonable person and his ideas change over time with new evidence and i guess that's all i ask of you as well dear listener to update your worldview as i do with mine when we're confronted with new evidence and it so happens that the evidence lately has been validating a lot of what I've been thinking, but I'm willing still to be told how perhaps there is evidence for kids to be masking up still. But again, we have to weigh all that. There are pros and cons. There's a cost-benefit analysis to run on this stuff, and it cannot be boiled down to a simple slogan like trust the science. That's a meaningless slogan. It's meaningless because Science is not something to be trusted. Science is a process to follow. And not blindly whatsoever, but with keen skepticism. We need that. We still need that in this world. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Until next time, guys. Ciao.